From American Public Media, this is Japan's Pop Power, an American Radio Works documentary. I'm Ray Suarez. To many people, global youth culture means rock and roll and other Western fashions. But for more and more young people across the world, the capital of pop culture is Tokyo. Electronics, DVDs, anime. It's Times Square times 10 as far as the level of neon goes, don't you think? Over the past decade, Japanese video games, animation, and comic books have caught fire in much of the world, including the U.S. There's Yatsuba. Naruto is a really good one by the same person who did Azumanga Daio. Japan is enticing to kids. It signifies cool, and that's a huge change. Japan's rise as a cultural power offers insights into the direction of world culture and the new global economy. In the coming hour, Japan's pop power, from American Radio Works, first, this news update. Ah, Japan, that ancient Buddhist country, home to the kimono, the tea ceremony, and kabuki. Westerners have long been fascinated by Japan's rich and very old cultural traditions. But in the 21st century, Japan is cool. From American Public Media, this is Japan's Pop Power, an American Radio Works documentary. I'm Ray Suarez. From Sydney to Seoul to San Francisco, children and young adults are gobbling up Japanese pop exports, anime, or animated movies and TV shows, manga, comic books, and video games. Sales of these pop culture products now match those of Japanese cars and make up one of the nation's few fast-growing export industries. Japan somehow has a knack for speaking to the dreams of today's young people. Japanese leaders are hoping that in the new creative economy, their country can build its future on the export of fantasy. This hour, Japanese cool. Chris Farrell and John Bewin went exploring, among other places, in Tokyo. So we're in this shop called Animate. So you have posters. We have action figures, action figures, dolls, towels, all stuff with anime characters on them. John, we must have looked a little out of place in that store. <laughs> think so? A couple of middle-aged Americans walking around this shop in Shibuya in this sort of trendy district of Tokyo. A store just jammed with stuff for fans of anime and manga. And every 15 feet or so, there's another small flat screen that's showing in another, another uh, anime show. Anime. This one's actually quite nice. Now, Chris Farrell, you are a business and economics reporter. Why could you possibly be interested in Japanese youth culture? Well, Japan is the world's second largest economy, and I followed it with interest for years. But I think I'm more intrigued by a story about the global economy, where wealth is coming from in a world where entertainment becomes more important. But truth be told, my real interest in this story was sparked by watching my son. I was driving the car, and he's reading a book from back to front. From right to left, in, in the, reading a Japanese manga in the Japanese fashion. Well, my kids are elementary schoolers, uh, but uh, they like to watch Cartoon Network, and these days... A whole lot of what's on Cartoon Network comes from Japan. Now, you lived in Japan before. 20 years ago for, uh, for a couple of years. So were you a big fan of anime and manga? Uh, no. You know, I went to Japan. I was enchanted by old Japan, rock gardens and sushi, uh, not whatever was cool for young people. Uh, but that was a long time ago. 
Well, times have certainly changed, and we teamed up to explore Japanese youth culture, global youth culture, especially through the lens of anime and manga. And we'll get back to Tokyo in a little while, but we'll start in any town USA. Well, Durham, North Carolina, it's the town I live in. Meet Jesse. Uh, my name is Jesse Peterson, and we're at Northgate Mall, right outside Walden Books. I am 14 years old. Usually about once or twice a month, usually on the weekends. My mom just drops me off. I go in there, just sit down, start reading. So Chris, picture this. It's, uh, we're at the mall. It's a quiet weekday afternoon. Jesse has just finished eighth grade at a Durham Middle School, and she is heading into this bookstore, uh, but has no plans to buy anything. My budget does not allow me to spend about eight bucks a volume on manga. Manga are uh, Japanese comic books. They're usually much thicker than, than the American type. Jessie uses this store as really a reading room and library, but she was a little nervous about drawing the attention of the clerks uh, by having a big microphone, so uh, I clipped a wireless mic to her tank top. Most of it is right here. A multitude of different series of manga. This is basically heaven for me. You know, in big chain bookstores by now, the manga sections are pretty big. You have, you know, hundreds and hundreds of books. This is a little Walden Books shop, and so none of the sections in the store are very big. The manga section was maybe only 12 feet of shelf space, but then I looked around and I realized that makes it a pretty substantial one. You've got, you know, sports, religion, self-help. Manga was twice the size of any of those sections. There's the series that got me all started on manga, which is Inuyasha, because one of my friends brought one to school. I have read so many different series that have so many different books. Cowboy Bebop is really good. It would be probably in the hundreds. It's like futuristic, there's lots of space travel and stuff. Tokyo Mew Mew is really funny too, and there's uh, Yatsuba. Naruto is a really good one. By the same person who did Azumanga Daio. She rattles off those Japanese words really well. <laughs> to people like Jessie and her friends, these words, the titles of anime and manga, they're, they're everyday household words. It's like you and me talking about Toyota or Sony. You know, that's a good analogy in another way. Japanese pop culture is a major export industry for Japan, like cars and stereos were for a previous generation. So it's big business and a cultural phenomenon. Here we are at the... Greater Richmond Convention Center, Richmond, Virginia. I guess you call it the Great Hall at the Convention Center. At the Mid-Atlantic Anime Convention. And we have all kinds of people dressed up in costumes, looking like characters out of an anime movie or a manga comic book. We went to this convention in June. Now, I've never been to a Trekkie convention, but that's how I imagined it. It seemed like that kind of scene. And these kids were really into their roles. We're nerdy kids in real life, and we're Final Fantasy characters right now. Indeed. Indeed. Final Fantasy VIII. Now, Final Fantasy, isn't that, that's a video game. Yes. Uh, my name is Derek. I am from uh, Manassas, Virginia. And uh, tell us who your, who your character is. Uh, I'm Son Goku from Dragon Ball Z. There are lots of wild, elaborate get-ups, but this guy really stood out. Orange ninja outfit, uh, but on his head was just this incredible thing. What I'm wearing currently is my stage three hair, which is uh, close to five feet long, uh, stands about a foot and a half off my head, comes out in all directions. And it's yellow and it's made of 
styrofoam, I guess. Uh, foam rubber, yes. Foam it's rubber. bright yellow. It's made of foam rubber. Weighs about 15 to 20 pounds. So it was a summer weekend day, and the Richmond Convention Center was filled with young fans. Very diverse crowd. There was a room with video games, and then there was another section of the convention center where you could buy all kinds of merchandise. And then there were three rooms where you had anime films running. I have to finish him off quickly or Kagome won't make it. Iron Reaver! I'm uh, Edward L. Fortner, Jr. I'm the uh, chairman and CEO for the convention. 2001 was our first year. This is our biggest, biggest crowd we've ever had. I think we're somewhere around approaching 3,000 right now. Uh, in 2001, we had 617 people. <laughs> so quite a bit of growth over the last couple of years. There was 135 conventions last year in the U.S. Hold on a second. I'm, I want to make sure everybody got what he just said. Play that back. There was 135 conventions last year in the U.S. That's two conventions a week on average somewhere in the U.S. And we're talking everywhere. Norman, Oklahoma, Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And the biggest, which is in Anaheim, California, 40,000 fans in the summer of 2006. There is this Japanese air or uh, flair that certainly is popular. I, it's big. It is really, really big. That is Anne Allison. A professor of cultural anthropology at Duke University. She has a new book out. Uh, it's about the, the global spread of Japanese stuff for kids. The book is called Millennial Monsters. And she's been watching this trend since the early 90s. That's when it really took off. In Japan, the 1990s is called the lost decade, but exports of Japanese pop culture tripled. And a really interesting thing happened culturally. Ann Allison talks about the first TV show to really make it big, Japanese show to really make it big in the U.S. and much of the world. You remember Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. It hit the U.S. on Fox Kids in 1993. When it was being considered for broadcast in the U.S. It took the guy who had the property, Himes, about eight years to get a network interested because they thought, first of all, they thought it was stupid. They thought American kids were too sophisticated to appreciate anything as dumb as that. Totally wrong. Um, but they also thought American kids would not be enticed by the Asianness. So in the scenes where you could see the faces of the characters, they'd be reshot with American, mostly Caucasian actors. They de-Japanized the show. But now, if you turn on the kids' channels on cable, there are a whole bunch of shows that are boldly Japanese. Torijiro was an aspiring Go player, and by the age of 20, he had surpassed his teacher. All of these things have overt signs of coming from a place that's not the U.S. You see temples, you see shrines, you see Japanese script. People are eating with chopsticks, they're eating rice, they're drinking tea. Fine, because you missed it, Naruto. Everyone will review the transformation jutsu. Now, that is what sells. Now you have U.S.-produced television shows that are set in Japan, and they're produced in the U.S., Because Japan or Asia or this kind of vague place over there is enticing to kids. It signifies cool, and that's a huge change. We're bringing the heat from the land of the rising sun with some sweet new shows. Get ready for Mare, the Prince of Tennis, and Hikaru no Go. But what's behind this change? I mean, why is Japan so cool? What is it about 
Japanese pop culture that strikes a chord with young people in China, France, South Africa, and Richmond, Virginia. Well, or Durham, North Carolina. And I remember Jessie in the bookstore. I pretty much asked her that question. It's kind of the, a lot of the originality about it. You, you can't get the emotions and the plots that you get. You can't get them in Western comics. If you've ever heard of Fooly Cooly, it's, it is so random. All right, what's this Fooly Cooly? It's, it's a manga series and an anime miniseries. It's also called FLCL. Uh, it's about a 12-year-old boy, but in the very first episode, there's this sexy female alien who comes whizzing by on a Vespa scooter and knocks him over. Then she whacks him over the head with a, an electric bass guitar that causes him to give birth to a robot that comes popping out of his head. And later, he's... In U.S. logic, we, we kind of want things logical and clean. Is it animal or is it not? Is it alive or dead? Is it good or is it bad? But in the stuff that we're talking about that's coming from Japan, things kind of go from one to the other. It doesn't have to be one or the other. It's both or neither or something beyond that. Ah, Fruits Basket. Jessie pulled another favorite manga off the shelf. It's about this girl who's um, an orphan, and she starts living with this really odd family. They share this, like, curse where they turn into a certain animal from the Chinese zodiac when they're weak or when they uh, have somebody of the opposite sex hug them. Often there's not a linear narrative, or if it is, it goes forward, it goes backwards, time is totally mixed up. The plots on some of these things are really hard to follow, and you pride yourself when you actually understand them. So why now? Why would Americans find all that aesthetic? Why that aesthetics now? That's a good question. And the other thing that I'm really fascinated by is why are Japanese animators, Japanese artists, creating it? Why Japan and not Norway? Um, I don't know. We're going to get to those questions. But meantime, let's leave Jessie to her manga reading there in the Walden bookstore. Yay! I, I just love doing this. It makes me happy. We'd been standing in the aisles, but now Jessie sat down on the floor cross-legged next to the shelves of manga. And to her relief and delight, the store clerks left her alone. And so right now I'm getting out Helsing, which is a vampire manga thing. And anything with vampires is cool. So there. Haha. I'm Ray Suarez. Coming up, why Japan? What is it about 21st century Japanese society that makes it such a prolific producer of cultural products that speak to young people all over the world? Chris Farrell and John Biewen explore the question in Tokyo. It's just rows and rows of books, and they're in these very bright colors. I mean, it's sort of a smallish shop by American standards until you realize that it's seven floors high. You're listening to Japan's Pop Power, from American Radio Works. Our program continues in just a moment from American Public Media. From American Public Media, this is Japan's Pop Power, an American Radio Works documentary. I'm Ray Suarez. Western pop culture has been big in Japan for a long time. These days, Japan is big in the US and much of the world, at least among young people the U.S. market just for Japanese anime. 
animated TV shows and movies, is now $4 billion a year. This year, well over 100,000 young Americans are attending 100-plus anime conventions across the country. Then add manga comic books and the multi-billion dollar video game industry from the Sony PlayStation to Nintendo and Super Mario Brothers. Japan is producing games and media fantasies that click with young people across the globe. But even in Japan, among the people making pop culture, there are mixed feelings about the media-saturated world in which today's kids are growing up. John Bewin and Chris Farrell continue their exploration into Japanese pop culture in Japan. Chris, earlier we met Jessie Peterson, a 14-year-old girl who is a big fan of manga Japanese comic books. Now meet Maki Nakayama. She's saying that she's 20 years old and she lives with her parents in the suburbs outside of Kyoto, the old capital. And she likes manga too. She does. Uh, Maki is a part-time office worker and an aspiring writer. Um, I met her because she's the neighbor of a friend of mine. That's right. You lived in Japan years ago. Well, so while you and I were there working on this program, I stopped by to meet Maki, and I asked her if she would show me some of her manga collection. We're sitting on one of those straw tatami mat floors at a low-slung table in her family's living room. She gets up, runs to her room, comes back with an armload of manga comic books. The main story in this one is love. There's a lot you could relate to. Practically everybody's reading it these days. Yeah, this is called Nana, N-A-N-A. Ah, okay. It's a story of two women. They're both named Nana. And they're these very kind of hip-looking young women. This one, it's all about fashion. Paradise of Kiss, Paradise Kiss is this series. So Maki likes manga, just like a lot of American kids. Yes, but there's a very big difference. Uh, being 20 years old and being a manga fan in Japan makes you absolutely average. That's right. In the U.S., it's still not mainstream. It's growing, but it's not everywhere. But in Japan, as you and I found, it's on a completely different scale. Right, we're inside a large anime and manga comic book store. This was a shop in Akihabara, the electronics district of Tokyo, and it's known as a hangout for the biggest fans of video games and manga and, and anime. The shop was called Tora no Ana, the Tiger's Den. It's just rows and rows of books, and they're in these very bright colors. I mean, it's sort of a smallish shop by American standards until you realize that it's seven it's floors high. So, John, remember you met Jesse in North Carolina at the Walden Books at that little manga section. Now compare that to this. Folks, picture a giant independent bookstore in New York City. But in this case, it's hundreds of thousands of volumes, floor after floor, with nothing but Japanese comic books, manga. Here's a great one with a, um, a young woman is in school girl uh, uniform, very short skirt, uh, and she's uh, carrying a very serious kind of combination sword and chainsaw. 
The big eyes are really noticeable in almost every drawing. They might be colored black, they might be colored purple, green, but the eyes are always big. You name it, whatever kind of comic book you want to read, it's here. You have superheroes, goths, romances, and a lot of it is for adults. Okay, we've come to the actual porn. Uh, there's lots of very large breasts. So whatever your address, there's a manga for you. Serious history books, technical manuals, Shakespeare plays. We've just come out of Tora Noana, the multi-story manga store. It was midweek during the work week, and it was raining. But the streets were jammed. And this big manga store was just one tiny piece of this enormous pop scene in Tokyo. Manga is sold everywhere, basically. Every single bookstore that you go to, every single kiosk, well, it's bound to have at least some. Any convenience store you walk into has manga. So it's, it's ubiquitous. That's our interpreter and guide, Ignacio Adriasola. He's a young Chilean. He lived in Japan for six years, got his university degree there. Uh, and now he's a grad student in the U.S. I met him at Duke. Talk about globalization. Ignacio took us around Akihabara. And this is a place that is either very hip or very nerdy, depending on your point of view. So basically it's really famous because of the otaku, the people that are very, very interested in these games and and comic books. Otaku is a Japanese word that that is used to refer to young people who who spend almost all their time playing video games, reading manga, and watching anime. People used to really look down on the otaku. They were nerds, social pariahs. But now, with the popularity of Japanese pop culture, all of a sudden it's kind of cool to be otaku. This is Otaku Central. And we're just walking this block after block of just profusions of stores selling electronics, DVDs, anime, computers. It's certainly Times Square times 10 as far as the level of neon goes, don't you think? There were lots of people standing under awnings in storefronts out of the rain playing video games. Everywhere you looked, there was another monitor showing the latest anime TV show or movie that you could buy on DVD. Well, what hits you is just the sheer volume of the product that's out there. And I guess shouldn't be too surprised about it. Half of all movies, TV shows made in Japan are animated. And one-third of all books sold in Japan are comic books. I say it's like air in Japan. I mean, it's just something that people grow up with. We met with Susan Napier uh, in a stylish and very busy coffee shop in the Shibuya section of Tokyo. You know, so they wouldn't really think of it as, is it popular? It'd be like saying, is Hollywood cinema popular in America? Napier is a Japan scholar at Tufts University in Boston. She wrote a book on anime a few years ago. Now she was spending a year in Japan writing two more books on Japanese youth culture and on Japan's place in the Western imagination. And she makes the point that Japan has long had an impact on Western culture and dates back to when Japan opened up to the West in the 1850s. And I don't think we would have modern art now if it hadn't been for the discovery of Japan, um, that the influence on the Impressionist first was so huge. And then you just have like roster, Van Gogh, um, Gauguin, Klimt. Um, and writers, too, Napier says. Uh, she talks about how Japanese literature inspired 
poets like Yeats and Ezra Pound. And then in the 1950s, I'm sort of zooming ahead here, uh, you have uh, the Dharma bombs, Kerouac, um, Ginsberg, Gary Snyder, very much influenced by Zen. But Impressionists, Van Gogh, beat poets, that was really the avant-garde. It was cutting edge. It was unusual. Today, Japanese pop culture, we're talking pop culture, is almost mainstream in many parts of the world. Uh, anime is huge in South Africa, in Mexico, in China. I mean, it's, it's and Japanese really pop culture is especially hot in France. Itself no slouch when it comes to culture. Ne vous donnez pas cette peine. Je ne vais pas loin, je vais chez Césarie. Et faites comme si de rien n'était. Nous sommes suivis. That's the French dub of the Japanese animated film Howl's Moving Castle. And did you know that in Europe, 80% of animated television shows are made in Japan? So there's no question that Japan's pop culture is having a major impact. And Napier thinks it's at least partly a sign of the times. There's the internet. We have this information technology. So, so ideas and products can just zip around this global economy with unprecedented speed. And young people love to use the web to share the stuff that they're reading and seeing and, and listening to, like music files or the latest TV show from Tokyo. You can now you know, download the latest anime uh, that this, that's big in Japan this week and you know, within a few hours. Uh, and, and then, of course, you have the magic of, um, of dubbing and, and uh, subtitling, things like that. So, what's really so you cool take a rich, very urban society and one with a very old culture, but also a very modern sensibility. And we've been talking about the Japanese knack for stories with sudden transformations or with characters that jump back and forth between reality and virtual reality. And then on the receiving end, you have a young generation that lives in a world that feels like that. You know, there's a world of rapid change and all these virtual experiences. Which brings us back to the otaku. The otaku are the biggest fans of anime, manga video games. And Susan Napier thinks there's a little bit of otaku in all of us. We're all becoming increasingly wired. We're all increasingly kind of getting into um, the sort of the boundaries. We're crossing over the boundaries between virtual reality and reality sort of every day more and more without really knowing it. So I'm doing the otaku not just as a Japanese phenomenon, but is ultimately saying something about, uh, you know, modern civilization, if we can call it civilization. You know, Chris, in Tokyo, people spend a lot of time riding around on electric trains. Two hours a day on average. And I noticed something being back in Japan this time. 20 years ago, when I lived there, you'd ride the trains and you'd look around and a lot of the people on the train were reading. Now, uh, everybody's got a cell phone and you, you're not supposed to make calls on the train. So I noticed people sitting there holding their cell phones and punching at the buttons sending text messages or playing a game on their phone or something. And you see a lot fewer paperbacks on the trains now. And that gets to one of the questions of our era. There are all these gadgets, and they connect us. They connect us around the world, and we love them. But are they making our lives richer or poorer? Yeah, some people worry that we're getting less connected to one another, to nature, or to any kind of spiritual life. A lot of Japanese pop culture deals with these apocalyptic sci-fi themes. The Wakoski brothers, they did The Matrix, and that was inspired by Ghost in the Shell, which is a very popular Japanese animated film from the mid-1990s. Ghost in the Shell is set in 2029 in Tokyo, 
And in the world of the film, you can't tell if the person you're talking to is human or robot or some combination. And you can't tell if your experiences are real or virtual. All your memories about your wife and daughter are false. They're like a dream. Someone's taken advantage of you. But that can't be. The truth is, you've never had a wife or kid. Like he said, they aren't real. They're a simulated experience, a fantasy. The vision of the future in this movie is dark and it's violent. My code name is Project 2501. I am a living, thinking entity who was created in the sea of information. Talk about a dark future. In the sequel called Innocence, female sex androids start cutting off the heads of their human masters. Now, these films were created by Production IG. We went to see the CEO at the company's headquarters in Tokyo. This is Mitsuhisa Ishikawa. The movie theater is a place where people can forget about their stress, the pressure of society, and human relationships. Ishikawa told us films like Ghosts in the Shell offer their audiences two things at once, escape and food for thought. By showing this violence and this view of the future, you're showing people a world that's on the edge of what's real and what's not. Even as they are thinking, this isn't reality. They will understand that it could be. So Chris, there's, there's an interesting tension here. We've been talking about how Japan is at the leading edge of global pop culture and how wired this new culture is and how comfortable it is with shifts between reality and virtual reality. And yet, as you were just talking about... There are these warnings. The dangers of technology, it's a theme throughout Japanese anime and manga. Uh, That's the music from Spirited Away. Right, and this is the film by Miyazaki, the, the biggest name in Japanese animated filmmaking. What is this place? Oh, do you hear that? And Spirited Away got an Oscar in 2003. And Miyazaki, he has huge hits in Japan, film after film. He's Japan's Walt Disney Plus. And Miyazaki's films especially seem designed as a counterweight to the digital age, not a celebration of it. Here's a typical moment from a Miyazaki film. This is from Howl's Moving Castle. came out just a couple of years ago. The action slows down, and there's this scene of breathtaking natural beauty, a a lake surrounded by snow-covered mountains and meadows, and a small boy and an old woman sit down to rest. We got all the laundry put away, Sophie. Oh, thank you, Marco. When you're old, all you want to do is stare at the scenery. It's so strange. I've never felt so peaceful before. Miyazaki's movies are often set in the past, and there are these respectful portrayals of people who make things by hand, like violins or old-fashioned airplanes. And by the way, uh, unlike Pixar or Disney, Miyazaki's movies are mostly hand-painted animation. At 24 frames a second. Steve Albert works for Miyazaki's studio. He talks about the extreme attention to detail in Miyazaki's films. I'll give you an example. There's a scene in Princess Mononoke where San comes into this into this castle and she jumps up on the roof and she goes across like this, you know. And then Ashitaka jumps up and he goes after her and he hits the edge of the roof 
and snaps a tile off and it crumbles and and it's really beautiful because you see she's light and he's powerful in a different way but heavy and the only people that really appreciate that are animators because they know what it takes to animate a sequence and they're trained and their eyes are going look what my god would you believe you know they they see all this stuff it's not just in the making of his movies but also in their messages that Miyazaki seems to be commenting on the times. In his films, greed, consumerism, pollution are bad, and nature is good. So maybe that's what we've come to in the 21st century. If you love a simpler, low-tech world and want to sing the praises of that world, the way to make your point is through an electronic fantasy, an animated film like Spirited Away, or My Neighbor Totoro. That's another big Miyazaki hit. It's about a big magic cat-like creature that takes these kids up into the treetops. <laughs> Here's Professor Susan Napier again, back in that Tokyo coffee shop. One of the things that Miyazaki is very worried about, he says that uh, he really wants people not to buy his videos, this is what he says anyway. Um, and he says, no, they should go out and play, for God's sake. But they're not going out and playing. They're sitting there and watching Totoro for the 50th time, and Totoro has, you know, beautiful woodland creatures frolicking around, and it's, it's almost more beautiful than, than reality. Chris Hayao Miyazaki may be a 60-some-year-old Japanese man, but he's a rock star to my kids. My daughter, my 10-year-old, desperately wanted his autograph. Well, we couldn't swing an interview with him, but we did visit his world-famous studio, and I was truly surprised by what we saw. We went there, among other things, to explore this question that you started with, which was, can a nation like Japan build an economic future on being the coolest country around? Still to come, in a new Japan, pop culture as a major export industry. And really, I mean, uh, anime has no, comp- no real competitors around the world. Uh, and uh, I would like to ask you, basically, uh, besides Japanese anime, is there anything that you can think of that could compete with that? Maybe Disney, but not really, right? I'm Ray Suarez. You're listening to Japan's Pop Power. To see a photo essay of an anime convention and to download this and other American Radio Works programs, visit our website at AmericanRadioWorks.org. Japan's Pop Power is a production of American Radio Works and the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University. Major funding for American Radio Works comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Japan's Pop Power was supported by the U.S. Japan Foundation and the Ford Foundation. Our program continues in a minute from American Public Media. From American Public Media, this is Japan's Pop Power, an American Radio Works documentary. I'm Ray Suarez. In the decades after World War II, Japan famously pulled off an economic miracle, turning itself into the world's second richest country by the 1980s. The Japanese achieved that miracle by making quality products you could hold in your hand or ride around in, electronics and cars. Manufacturing is still big business in Japan, but it's not the future. In the new century, Japan is betting that economic growth will come from another sector, what's been called Japan's gross national cool. 
In the past decade, Japan's exports of games, toys, and pop culture have soared with no slowdown in sight. For young people in the U.S. and in much of the world, Japan is a brand that stands not for quality machines, but for the best in entertainment and storytelling. Increasingly, the world economy is based less on selling physical objects and more on selling content, media images, games and stories to while away our free time. In this last part of Japan's pop power, Chris Farrell and John Bewin continue their travels around Tokyo. They explore just how rich the Japanese are getting on pop culture and whether a nation can keep a firm hold on what's cool. Well, what's the name of the town? Mitaka. Mitaka. We're in the western suburbs in an area that they call, uh, what is it, um, Anime Alley. So there we were, Chris, walking through what had been billed as the Silicon Valley of Japan's new entertainment industrial complex. But in Silicon Valley, you have these office towers, these giant campuses, and this was no Silicon Valley. This is very kind of sleepy, suburban, residential community here. This is like Menlo Park before the dot-com boom. But we were excited. We were on our way from the train station to Studio Ghibli. It's the studio founded by Hayao Miyazaki. He's the animated filmmaker who made Spirited Away, the, the Oscar-winning film of a few years ago, among many others that have been hits and got raves around the world. And we've gotten the directions, and we followed the directions, and we walk up this quiet street, and we just didn't see any studio. I think it's a little longer or farther walk than they led us to believe. Hmm. We called the studio again, and it became clear that we had walked right past the place. Think about that. Here's a world-famous studio, ranks with Disney, Pixar, and it's in this nondescript three-story building in a suburb, you know, surrounded by a bunch of trees, and the walls are covered with vines. 99% of the people who pass by this building don't give it a second thought. It doesn't really look like anything. <laughs> That's Steve Alpert. He's an American. He's in charge of international distribution for Studio Ghibli, and he's one of only 150 employees in the whole company. Lots of the others are the artists, the people who draw these gorgeous images, paint them on thousands and thousands of plastic cells. There are computers and state-of-the-art cameras, but the offices are cramped, and there are these small wooden drawing desks. This studio that you're sitting in, compared to a facility of the same type in the United States, is, is incredibly small and doesn't seem to be that we have a lot of resources, relatively speaking, but yet we're able to create pretty good feature films. We've talked about how big the entertainment sector is in Japan, and in the video game business, you do have huge players. Sony, Nintendo. But in these businesses, animated films, TV shows, and manga comic books, there is no Sony. There's no Toyota or Toshiba. These creative industries are made up of thousands of tiny companies, a, a cottage industry, and they're all trying to make a living producing niche products. Now this studio has made 15 films. You know, you talk about other studios, probably the most anybody else has made notable animated films is five at the most. In other words, most of the animation made in Japan is done in far smaller shops than Studio Ghibli. And yet, Chris, you're the business reporter here. Uh, if you add up all these little companies, it is a huge pop culture industry, right? Absolutely. Gamers go for Japanese video games on their PlayStations and GameCubes. Manga publishers, one-third of all books published in Japan are comic books, and they're selling millions overseas. More than half the world's animation comes out of Tokyo. 
And over the past 15 years, the Japanese economy went nowhere. However, Japanese pop culture, particularly Japanese pop culture exports, did well. So the salary man in the blue suit who we heard so much about for so long, the guy who works in the big bank or at the auto company, that worker is being joined and, and even somewhat replaced by a new kind of Japanese worker. We were outside a manga comic book store in Shibuya, in the heart of Tokyo. Our interpreter, Ignacio, struck up a conversation with a, with a woman leaving the store. She told us she'd been visiting the manga shop, uh, not for pleasure, but for her job. She was doing research. She, her company is around the corner. Her, her work at this company is making anime. So in order to do that, she needs to go and study what the fans are up to. So that's why she comes to anime at all. Eiko Torikai is in her 30s. Uh, she had her hair in pigtails and jeans rolled up at the bottom and these bright red high-top sneakers. So we invited ourselves to Eiko's office, which was nearby, and the company she works for is Amuse Soft Entertainment, and it occupies one floor of an office building. We're entering some cubicle land here, and some sm- there's little conference rooms, lots of movie posters on the walls, anime posters. Eiko is an animation producer, and her company converts manga comic books into animated films, and then they sell the DVDs in Japan and other countries, including the U.S. Uh, she's working on um, on a shoujo, like ladies' comic style war story, set in the early Meiji period, um, which would be in like the 19th century. 19th century, yeah. Eiko's company specializes in a subgenre of manga and anime, same-sex love stories with young men, but the artists are primarily women, and the audience is female. She showed us one series she's worked on that's already on the shelves uh, in the U.S. in comic book form. And uh, the DVDs are going to be sold in America and and, uh, probably in Europe as well later this year. Now, Chris, as we've seen by now, a lot of this stuff in Japanese anime and manga and video games is is kind of racy and very violent often, and it's a little bit kind of out there. Well, that's often true of any form of emerging pop culture. Think about rock and roll or, or hip-hop. But when it comes to Japan and business, there really is a big difference between these creative industries and the traditional Japanese corporation, the salarymen that you were talking about. And yet the Japanese government is showing more than a passing interest in these creative businesses. We went to an office tower in the government district of Tokyo to visit an official from JETRO, the Japan External Trade Organization. They traditionally have backed the Japanese automobile industry, Japanese steel industry. Now they're really trying to back the Japanese cool industries to grow in the United States, in Europe, rest of Asia, grow the export market. We met with Dai Higashino of JETRO's economic research department. He was dressed appropriately for his government job in a brown suit and wingtips. He's 37 years old, roughly the same age as Eiko Torikai, the animation producer we just met. Do you like manga, anime? Well, uh, some part of, uh, I like uh, some, part, uh, some mangas uh, for adults, but uh, I'm not... Uh, <laughs> Higashino switched to Japanese right there to say, 
I am not an otaku, not a fanatical consumer of anime, comic books, or video games. You know, that almost went without saying. And yet, he had plenty to say about the Japanese content industry, movies, music, game software, animation, and he flipped through these thick government reports on the growing pop culture sector. Uh, in 2001, uh, overall sales were for 11 trillion yen. And um, for 2010, it's expected to rise up to 15 trillion yen. 15 trillion yen, by the way, is, is about $150 billion. All right, that's real money, and you know we know the Japanese pop culture industry is growing. And what we really wanted was a sense what's coming in the future. For example, car companies get bigger market share, sell more cars, means more dollars, more jobs. So, does pop culture work the same way? Now, I know he talked about the importance of price when it comes to manga. Manga right now, ten dollars a pop here in the U.S. If they can get it down to five dollars, sales could soar. And then talking about anime. He was very confident because he believes Japan owns the brand and more popularity around the world. That means more wealth for Japan. Japanese anime has a very high quality and very, very high standards of production. It's not only sold for kids, but also meant for adults. Uh, so there's a huge economic potential. Uh, besides Japanese anime, is there anything that you can think of that could compete with that? Maybe Disney, but not really, right? Yes, but Higashino also noted that a lot of anime and manga is being outsourced to South Korea and elsewhere. And in fact, there's a growing anime and manga business in Korea. And when we visited a publishing company, um, they're planning to find manga that's made by American artists and imported into Japan. Well, why not? I mean, this is pop culture. Think of rock and roll again. It was an American innovation, but people all over the world heard it, bought American records, then turned around and formed their own rock band. Well, that process is already well underway with all the cultural products that we've been calling Japanese, from Australia to South Africa, France to the U.S. People are making anime, and they're posting it on the web. They're drawing comics and calling them manga. Okay, so now we leave Japan and we're sliding back to the U.S. and back to the Mid-Atlantic Anime Convention in Richmond, Virginia. We were there earlier in the show. Right now we're noticing that a lot of these people who love this stuff, who create this stuff, are, are turning into business people. We found Austo Callwood behind a big table in the bustling vendor's room at the convention, and he's formed his own international production company, Tenbu Productions. He was talking to fans and selling preview copies of his comic book. Single copy of the manga is how much? $10. $10. The book Cove Pirate Mercenary, it's based off of um, Japanese Buddhism plus a lot of Western pirate concepts. So I kind of meshed both together and pushed them into the future that looks like a past. (laughs) Callwood is in his 30s. He lives in Springfield, Virginia. He's been a fan since before Japan got hot. He can still remember the first time he saw Japanese animation in the early days of cable TV. I think I was six or seven years old. I um, was over at a friend's house. and uh, I'm from the Virgin Islands, but I lived in Florida. My friend had cable, and he said, you've got to watch this show. He turned it on, and it was Battle of the Planets, um, known as Gachaman in, in Japan. He was captivated by Japanese storytelling 
and still is. All my life, that has been my number one, one love. Now, along with this new production company that you mentioned, Callwood owns and operates a DVD store in Northern Virginia that specializes in Asian movies and TV shows. And it's a good business to be in right now. In the last two years, this industry blew up. I think one of the fastest industries in, the, in this nation that will not stop. Um, I relate a lot to uh, things to hip-hop because I personally grew up through hip-hop from the 70s to, to now. And it took 15, 20 years for hip-hop to make it in the mainstream. It took two years for somebody to notice animation and make it to the level that it's at right now where it's on TV 24 hours a day here in America now. I don't know if Austell Caldwood will succeed as a manga artist, but what is really struck by is his passion for the art and his genuine respect for Japanese culture. Right, he's, he's even studied the language. And uh, all around the world now, Japanese language courses are filling up like never before, thanks to the global spread of Japanese cool stuff for young people. You know, a lot of us used to assume that the West, and the U.S. in particular, had a lock on cool, had a lock on pop culture. And Japan has proved that wrong. And Austell Callwood seems to think that's just fine. You know, with the Internet, the world has become smaller. And so it, 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 I think some of the glory or, this, you know, the untouchableness of America, Razwa, this is an American product. Oh, wow. That might, I think that's kind of settled a bit because, you know, the world is small, but things are accessible now. The output of Japan's pop culture industry is certainly very accessible to those thousands of young people who filled the Richmond Convention Center. And remember, more than 100 other anime conventions all across the country every year now. You know, John, I can't think of a time before this when so many people around the world could find so many ways to amuse themselves. And Japan, for a combination of reasons, cultural, economic, historical, seems just especially well-positioned to create products for today's youth. They're open-minded, they're restless, and they're very wired. Asian general is emerging as a center of cultural power to compete with North America and Europe. The competition's fierce. The only sure winner is the consumer. I'm Ray Suarez. The rise of Japan as a cultural power shows a side of globalization that many people did not see coming. Faraway countries with rich cultures are plugging into new technologies and entertaining millions of people in the United States and across the globe. Japan's Pop Power was produced by John Bewin and Chris Farrell. It was edited by Mary Beth Kirshner, mixing by Craig Thorson, production assistance from Ellen Gettler, Marina Cookso and Molly Bloom. Web production by Ocean Kalin. The senior producer is Sasha Aslanian. Project manager, Misha Quill. The executive editor is Stephen Smith. The executive producer, Bill Buesenberg. I'm Ray Suarez. To see links to Japanese pop culture sites and to hear this program again, visit our website, AmericanRadioWorks.org. Major funding for American Radio Works comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Japan's pop power was supported by the U.S. Japan Foundation and the Ford Foundation. American Radio Works is the documentary unit of American Public Media. American Public Media.